0: We are going to be concluding our sermon series in the book of Ruth this morning. And so I trust that this series has been helpful to you, helpful for your own soul, and then also helpful uh, even as you think about others maybe who are in a broken situation, who are in a difficult situation that perhaps you have even used the book of Ruth to minister to others or it's shaped your perspective as you have talked to people who are like Naomi and like Ruth, destitute and devastated in their lives. I, I did want to just make brief mention in terms of what we're doing next, just so you're aware. Uh, we are trying to publish through a different, few different places, so through email, and then also uh, we've given you an insert in the bulletin this morning, just of what's coming up in terms of preaching. And so uh, we are just concluding Ruth today, just like I mentioned. And then we are going to be uh, diving into a topical sermon series, and we've just entitled it Discipleship Essentials, and so that's what we'll be looking at for about six or seven weeks. Easter's in there as well. Uh, so next week, my friend Mitch Hogavin is coming, and he's preaching uh, on Bible intake, and I'll be preaching a sermon on baptism. I've asked Matt Laylaw to preach a sermon on uh, forgiveness in the book of Philemon, Stephen Jones, one of our elders, will be preaching on justification and sanctification, the relationship between those two. And then Pastor Terry will be preaching on the local church. So and then again, Easter will be uh, mixed in there as well. So that's what we're doing uh, in terms of preaching after this sermon series in Ruth. and uh, so you can be looking forward to that. Uh, Ruth chapter four is the passage that is before us today. Ruth four, it's on page two hundred and twenty four in the Pew Bible. It will be reading verses 13 through to the end of the chapter. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear what Holy Scripture says. Ruth 4.13 So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Nurse, And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated as we pray. <clears throat> Father, would you help us in these moments? We're so thankful for all that has taken place even up until this point in the service. That we have prayed to you, that we have sang or sung songs to you, that we have baptized Jack in our midst. Now we have heard your word read, and now we are going to hear your word preached. And so, Father, would you help us in these moments? We are weak, we are frail, we are prone to sin and to unbelief. So, God, we need your spirit. To be at work in all of us. We need your spirit to aid and to help us to see in the text things that we would not be able to see otherwise, and most important of all, that you'd help us to believe in the necessity of the greater David, the Lord Jesus, and that we would be inclined to give our allegiance and our hearts to him above all else this morning. Father, I'm aware that there are both believers and unbelievers in our midst. Would you help us all to hear from you? And would your spirit be at work in all of our hearts? Father, for our good and joy and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by telling you about a mother in need of redemption. A mother in need of redemption, the mother's name is Angela Juan. Angela is married to Leon, who is a very successful man. The couple and this family comes from uh, the Chicago area. Leon has two doctorates and is a dentist. Angela and Leon also have a son named Christopher. Now, their son Christopher struggled with his sexuality even from a young age. But it was only in his early 20s that Christopher revealed his homosexual tendencies to his parents. Now, Angela was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. She was a traditional Chinese mother, though, and so this news devastated her. The news that her son in her 20s The jewel of her eye was gay, was devastating to her. It it, It caused her to be distraught, and she even contemplated ending her own life. Around that time, though, Angela and Leon, through this crisis, came to faith in Christ. And the way that that happened was this. Angela picked up a pamphlet on homosexuality, and in that pamphlet, it not only talked about homosexuality, but also about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the message was this. That tract shared that God loves all of us who are sinners. God loves all of us, even in in spite of the fact that we are sinners. And so this is what this did to Angela's heart. God opened Angela's heart to see that just as God can love her despite her sin, she could love her son despite his immorality. You see, before coming to Christ, Angela could not find it within herself to love her gay son. But after coming into an encounter with Christ and with the gospel, she realized that she could do nothing other than to love her son. Now, that's not a sermon or a message on sexuality or biblical sexual ethics by any stretch of the imagination. I just want to kind of use this as a story of redemption. Now, let's return back to Christopher. Christopher had started to live quite a lifestyle. He began both doing and selling drugs. He was partying. He was at the clubs and living a very promiscuous lifestyle. And he was eventually kicked out of his doctoral program for dentistry. One day... His parents went to visit Christopher in Atlanta, and this is how that went. Christopher could not stand to be with his parents. They were not preaching at him. They weren't berating him with the gospel or anything like that. But just the very transformation that had taken place in the lives of his parents was enough to sufficiently offend him. So on day two, Christopher tells his mom and dad, get out. But before his dad left, Christopher's father wanted to give him a gift. And that gift was the dad's very first Bible. Dad, I don't want your Bible. But his dad left it on the kitchen counter and walked out. But as soon as they left, Christopher, out of anger, out of, I I, I don't know, bitterness... Out of frustration, he took his dad's Bible and he threw it into the trash. Now remember that detail that will come up later in the sermon. After that visit, it was clear to Christopher's parents that he was totally unreachable and the situation was completely hopeless. But they chose not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. And so Angela and Leon started to pray earnestly. There's a group of 100 people from their church and their Bible study fellowship who are praying for Christopher. Angela fasted every Monday for seven years for her son. On one occasion, she fasted for 39 days for her son. Things would get worse, though, before they got better. And so one day, Angela received a call. Mom, I'm in jail. Christopher was arrested for his drug dealing and he was facing 10 years to life in federal prison in Atlanta. A mother and a son in need of redemption. Now, I bring up this story because I think the entire book of Ruth though obviously with different details and different specifics. It is also a story about a destitute duo who are greatly in need of redemption. Naomi and Ruth have been decimated and devastated, and they have been left destitute. We can call them the destitute duo. And they had returned to the land of Judah because they heard wind that God had visited his people and there was a harvest in the land. And the story of Ruth is the story of God's providential work behind the scenes to bring about restoration and redemption to this destitute duo. And that's what we have been considering for the last two months as a church. And here in chapter 4, what we have is the climax and the culmination of this redemptive story. Last week we began as Matt preached to the church from Ruth 1 through 12, and that was really the scene at the city gates where legal proceedings took place. And now in verses 13 through 17, at first we have a scene where a baby is born to Ruth. And the concerns now are more upon the women of the, of, of the city, really, of the, of the town of Bethlehem. And this is what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to consider this text in two movements. First, redemption for Naomi through Obed. Redemption for Naomi through Obed. And we see this in 4.13-17. through 17. Redemption for Naomi through Obed. That is the first movement that we have in our passage now verse 13 is quick and brief i'm not sure if you picked up on that as i was reading it's one verse it's five statements it's 25 words in the english but in all of that span a marriage a conception and a birth took place it's quick it's quick it's brief it's terse so boaz takes ruth and she becomes his wife And this is quite the progression for Ruth because remember, Ruth was first a foreigner and and then she was the lowest servant and then she was upgraded to maidservant and now she is a wife. Her exaltation within the community and the people of God is nearly complete. So then what happens? Both uh, Boaz and Ruth then consummate their marriage And just as an important detail, remember that Ruth was married to Malon for 10 years, for a decade, and the couple, the young couple, were unable to conceive. That could have been due to Ruth's barrenness or to Malon's sterility, we are not told. But either way, for a decade, Ruth was not able to conceive with Malon. But on the wedding night... God grants fertility to Ruth, and she conceives. The one who is behind the conception in Ruth's womb is the covenant God of Israel. Now, that's important because in the Bible, obviously, the main actor, the main character is God. And in many books of the Old Testament, God is very clearly on the pages, but in the book of Ruth, it is, it's clear that he is at work, but only two times are his actions directly referenced. One of those is here in the granting of conception to Ruth, and the other one is where uh, we are told that God visits the fields of Bethlehem with a harvest. So, so th- th- what that means is this. God has granted fertility once and now twice. First, he has granted fertility to the fields of Bethlehem, and second, he provides fertility to the womb of Ruth. And it was the happiest days for mother and grandmother because a son had been born. And I say this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think it's there in the text that some things never change, right? Like, so here at this church, and, and I'm a little bit miffed about it, just jokingly, but, you know, uh, the, the women of the church, like, get a party every time there's a marriage or there's a baby, and they just get to come and, and hang out. I don't really care about the presents, but there's good food. And, uh, and the men never get this. But th- some things never change, right? So there's a baby that's born, and the ones who flock to the scene are not the men, but the women. The, the observers or the arbiters in the prior scene are the elders of the city at the town gates. But the one who are the main speakers or who are the extras on the scene in 13 through 17 are not the men, but the women, the neighborhood women. Their speech is primary in our passage. So if in Matt's passage they took care of legal matters, now it's concerning more personal matters for Naomi and for Ruth. Now remember these women. They showed up one other place in the book of Ruth, also in chapter 1, and that scene went like this. Ruth and Naomi had made the trek back from the land of Moab to the town of Bethlehem. And as the two are approaching the town, the women say, because they look out in the distance and they see a woman who's like half familiar, and they look at Hagrid Naomi and say, Is that Naomi? And you'll remember in that scene that it was where Naomi changed her name from pleasant to bitter, and she lodged a complaint against God for the harsh ways in which he had treated her. So, So we need to see our passage against the backdrop of that prior passage. So what is it that the women say? Well, it's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. But they begin by praising God for his kind treatment of Naomi and the provision of a redeemer. This redeemer will um, fill up Naomi's emptiness. He will restore hope to her. He will revive her soul. He will refresh her spirits. And even as Naomi has returned to Yahweh, Yahweh will return life to Naomi's soul. And I just want to remind you, brother and sister, I cannot guarantee that God will do for you what he did for Naomi. He probably will not bring revival to your soul by the birth of a grandson to your daughter-in-law who has been recently married to your kinsman redeemer. That's not even sensible in our day and age and in our culture. But I do want to remind you, friend. I do want to remind you, brother. I do want to remind you, sister that God delights to restore hope to his people. It is in God's very nature, as the great shepherd of souls, to revive the souls of his people. He will often do this through the instrumentality of his word. He will do this by the nearness of his presence. And he will do this by leading us in paths of righteousness. Which means this. There is healing There is hope and there is refreshment for your soul that is available and to be enjoyed for all who make it a habit of their life to regularly return to the shepherd of their souls, the Lord Jesus, the greater David. The one place that you can find hope and healing and soul restoration, as we will see later in the sermon, is by returning to the Lord Jesus. I just want to remind you of that. This is how God works and this is how God acts. He is a shepherd and he brings restoration to our souls and he delights to do so. And for Naomi, everything is going to be now okay. Because this Redeemer would restore life to her now and this son that has been born to Ruth would be to her a nourisher and a caretaker, even when her hair is turned gray and white. And then then we have this amazing, remarkable statement about Ruth. And I'm not sure if you picked up on this, but in verse 15, it says this. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Most of you, if you have some cursory understanding of the book of Ruth, would probably identify Ruth as a love story. But, but, but this is the only time that the word love is used in the entirety of the book of Ruth. And the love that is spoken of is not the love between Boaz and Ruth as husband and wife or as lovers. The, the love is not between Ruth and the baby, between mother and son. No, the love that is highlighted is the love of Ruth for Naomi, the love of a daughter-in-law for her mother-in-law. Naomi had lost two biological sons, but she had gained a daughter-in-law. And this is remarkable because in that patriarchal society, having sons was everything. And seven was the ideal number, so seven sons represented an ideal family. And even better than seven sons was Ruth, her Moabitess daughter-in-law. Which means this, that it is Ruth, who is a Gentile outsider, who is held up as the model of self-sacrificial love. Not just in our passage, but in the entirety of the book of Ruth. And and I just want you for a moment to, to recognize and notice the beauty of this love and loyalty. Ruth, out of no interest of her own, chose to cling to Naomi and return to the land of Judah. She left behind all that was familiar and all that could have granted to her security And then upon arrival in Bethlehem, she courageously went into the fields and labored hard to provide for her mother-in-law. And then she jeopardized her safety and her honor by proposing to Boaz by following the most outlandish of plans proposed by her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now she was married to an older man in Boaz, not out of romantic interest, but out of devotion to her mother-in-law which means this, humanly speaking, it is the love of Ruth that has brought restoration to Naomi's life. I I, I want us to see that in the text because the upshot for us is this. Friend, you cannot change the world. You, You cannot even save your neighbor. And ultimately, God must be working to bring about restoration and healing in the lives of the the ones that you love. But often God will use the love and loyalty of his people to do that restoring and healing work. So I'm certain that most of you in this room have people in your life that are either completely gone astray that are going through an extremely difficult hardship or that are just absolutely broken and devastated by the realities of life and living in a broken world, I just want to remind you, Christian, do not underestimate the impact that your love can have on others. You can have a tremendous impact for others' good and God's glory as you seek to live selflessly in love to those whom God has put in your God can do it all on his own. He has no need of me. He has no need of you. But often he delights to use his people to be the conduits of his grace to those who need it most. Do not underestimate the power that your simple acts of love in ordinary life can have to those around you. Now, just returning to Naomi for a moment. This is a complete reversal of chapter one. Naomi has been brought from emptiness to fullness, and in chapter one, I painted the scene of Naomi rocking back and forth in a rocking chair with empty hands, with bitter disappointment in her heart, with tears flowing down her cheeks as the years went on in Moab first a deceased husband second no production of grandchildren and third the death of her two sons it is a sad picture of a should be grandmother rocking back and forth with empty arms and tears flowing down her cheeks so against that backdrop here verse 16 the naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Her empty hands are filled with a baby. Her empty heart is filled with renewed hope. And her empty future has been filled with security because of the baby that she holds in her arms. And she she is no longer bitter Naomi because she is Grandma Naomi. All because of this Redeemer. Now, now, Up until this point in the book, whenever there's been the redeemer mentioned, it's been a reference either to Mr. So-and-so, okay, that Matt talked about last week, Mr. So-and-so who had the first right of redemption of Elimelech's property and of Ruth, but he refused to exercise his right of redemption because that would impair his own inheritance. And then all of the times that there has been a reference to a redeemer in the book of Ruth thus far, it has been a reference to who? To Boaz. He was the worthy man, remember? He did not take advantage of Ruth, but instead protected her. Boaz acted gentlemanly, like as a gentleman and generously. He he has acted with integrity in accordance with the law. He is the embodiment of the loyal love of the covenant-keeping God of Israel to Ruth and to Naomi. All the talk thus far about a redeemer has been all about Boaz. Boaz who agreed to take Ruth as a foreigner, as his wife. Boaz who produced an heir for the late Malon. Boaz who redeemed the land so they could remain in Elimelech's family. Boaz who has agreed to become a shelter for the destitute duo. But if you paid attention to the words of the women, the redeemer they speak of is not Boaz, but of the baby. Did, Did you catch that? The one who is the redeemer, according to the women, is not Boaz, but his son. So that's very interesting. The focus of the passage, then, is moving away from Boaz to the baby. It is moving from the father to the son, from Boaz to Obed, and really from the father to the son, to the grandson of the son, ultimately to King David. And that leads to the second movement of this sermon, redemption for the world through David. Redemption of the world through David in four eighteen through twenty two. So the book ends in the most, on the on the face of it, the most boring of ways, with a genealogy, with a family tree. But this helps us to see that the book of Ruth is not ultimately about Ruth. And while God dealt kindly with Naomi, and the book is a beautiful picture of how God can bring restoration to a destitute widow. The book is not about Naomi either. The book is not even about Boaz, the Redeemer, the type of Christ who took it upon himself to care for the destitute duo at great cost to himself. And he demonstrated extraordinary kindness to Naomi and to Ruth. It's, it's not about him either. You no, know, the book is marching forward towards the birth of Obed. And really, it is progressing towards the birth of Obed's grandson to Israel's greatest and most significant king, David. So let's just linger here for a few minutes as we wrap up this sermon and this sermon series. Let's consider the genealogy itself. Genealogies in one sense are boring, and they're a bit of a tongue twister, but they're actually quite significant in the Bible's storyline. This genealogy echoes back to the genealogies of Genesis. So this means that the writer of Ruth saw this story as the culmination of the redemptive story which began in Genesis. Okay? Ruth is a linking book. It connects what comes before and what comes after. So Adam was the founder of all humanity. Noah was the founder of post-flood humanity. Abraham was the founder of the line chosen to bless the world. Boaz now was the fo- was the founder of the line that would yield the Davidic dynasty. So there is an unbroken chain then from Adam to Noah to Abraham to Boaz and to David. So a question that may have been on the minds of later Israelites at this juncture was this. Why in the world does our most significant king in our nation's history have Moabite blood coursing through his veins? Like, what in the world is up with that? It is the book of Ruth that helps us to answer that question. You see, because what we see in the book of Ruth is God's heart for the Gentiles and for the nations, now, to a Jewish person, that might sound a little bit confusing because in Deuteronomy 23, it says that no Moabite shall, assemble, uh, t- shall enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. So Moabites, I think what that means is who remained resolute in their idolatry and rebellion against God were unwelcome in the assembly of Yahweh. Okay? So there is a sense in which the Old Testament teaches that um, the, the, the pagan people of the nations are not welcome in the assembly of the Lord. But that has to be balanced with the fact that God has invited and included a Moabite women, woman to be a full-fledged member of the people of God here in the book of Ruth. But it goes beyond even that. Okay, Not only is this Moabite member, uh, Mo- Moabite is a member of the nation of Israel, but she will play an essential role in the building of the Davidic Dynasty. Okay, so Ruth is the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, the one to whom God promised that one from his seed would rule over the kingdom forever, okay? So it's an amazing thing that Ruth is allowed to kind of feed off the crumbs that fall off the table of Boaz. That's an amazing thing in and of itself. It's an amazing thing that Boaz sort of includes her as the beneficiary of his generosity when she is a Moabitess and he is an Israelite. It is an even more amazing thing that she is included in the the full-fledged people of God by becoming the wife of Boaz. It is an even more amazing thing that she is actually part of the line that will lead to Israel's greatest king, King David. Which means this. Our God is a global God. Our God is a heart for all people, for the Jew and for the Moabite. And what a tremendous truth this is for us, who live in the GTA in the 21st century. One of the most multicultural cities in the world, with over 250 ethnicities present and over 180 dialects spoken in the Toronto region. The Book of Ruth is instructive for us. It is God's heart and desire to call out His sheep from every people group and ethnic background. It is the triune God's desire to redeem people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He wants to do this so that the church would be full of roots. Foreigners who would be incorporated into the people of God. Outsiders who would be made insiders because of the kind providence of God. And so we who are foreigners, we who are outsiders, we who are Gentiles, first generation Christians, can be confident that God wants us in this house and in his family. Because when we look at the family tree of the ultimate redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, what you'll find is this, you'll find Ruth, you'll find Rahab, you'll find Tamar, and you'll also find Bathsheba, who is called the wife of Uriah the Hittite, which is an important detail. Three Gentile women and Bathsheba who was married to a Gentile man, and that each of these played a critical role in the perpetuation of the seed line that would culminate in the birth of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a global God with a heart for the nations. And that has to be our heart as well. Now, another question that might be on the minds of some Israelites, perhaps it's on your mind if you know the scriptures, is this. How in the world did the line of King David emerge from the dark period of the judges? How in the world did First of all, the seed line of David survived. And then second of all, how was it that the seed line of the promised offspring was able to continue and emerge out of the period of the judges? R- remember that the period of the judges was up, until, what was up until that point the darkest times of the nation's history. It was bleak, it was dark, it was tumultuous. It, it was a time of recurring rebellion. It was a time of moral and spiritual decay. It was a time of rampant sinfulness and it was a time of foreign oppression. And the repeated refrain in the book is that there, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And even during the moral morass and the backdrop of spiritual darkness, there were three glimmers of light. First, there was a covenant faithful and righteous man in Boaz. Boaz. Second, there was a Moabitess woman who came to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh in Ruth. And third, there there was the providence of God to orchestrate everything for their temporal good and the advancement of his redemptive purposes in this world. The society was in utter chaos. It, It couldn't have gotten worse. But God was working nonetheless The people's sin had brought darkness upon the land of Israel, but God shone light in Bethlehem. And there was brokenness everywhere, but God was working to accomplish his redemptive purposes. And is that not a helpful truth for us to cling to? I've mentioned this up here just in passing on multiple occasions. I am not like a political guy. I'm not an economic guy. I, I, I've, I, I have pretty little idea of what's happening at the sort of political and um, massive scale societal level. But I, I do know enough just to say like our country is kind of in not a great spot <laughs> at the moment. I, I think our world is becoming increasingly more complicated and messy. Our society, it would seem, is headed towards further moral and spiritual decay. Churches in this country are not necessarily on the rise in terms of growth. In fact, we hear and see of many once faithful churches closing their doors or being sold to, I don't know, like bars or to, to mosques and things like that. But the truth that we can cling to is this that no matter the darkness, the corruption, or the moral decay, we can be confident that our God is at work to build his church, to expand his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, and the gates of hell cannot prevail against the salvific work of the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our confidence that the God of Naomi is still on his throne, And the greater David has come and accomplished redemption for the world. And he has promised to build his church and that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. That is our hope. We began the sermon with a mother in need of redemption, which led to a mother and a son now in need of redemption. Let me conclude with the remainder of that story. Mom, I'm in jail. Christopher talks about how he did not want to call home because he was afraid of being berated and being lectured. But he calls home, and the first words out of his mother's mouth was, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words. Three days later, Christopher was walking around the cell block and he saw a heap of trash. And he thought, my life is so much like that pile of garbage. His was a story from riches to rags. He was from upper middle class suburban Chicago, whether his family is traditionally Chinese, his father has earned two doctorates as a dentist. Christopher himself was three months away from earning his own doctorate in dentistry. Now he finds himself in a prison cell in Atlanta amongst criminals. But something on that trash pile caught his attention. So he went. He, he went. He bent over, picked it up, and lo and behold, it was a Gideon's New Testament. He went back to his cell, read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. Now, he would tell you in his testimony that he didn't think that the Bible was going to be the solution to all of his problems. He just had a lot of time that he had to kill. Remember, he's in prison. But that word began to expose the sin and the rebellion in Christopher's heart. And right around that same time, if things could not get even worse, he, was test- he tested positive for HIV. And he said he felt like, a, like it was a death sentence that had come over him. So he was lying in bed and he was looking up at the bunk above him and it said, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. Which reads this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Christopher says this, In the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still had a plan for me. God began to transform Christopher gradually but genuinely. He began to root out idols in Christopher's life, the most obvious being that of drugs, He was over that within a couple of months. But the biggest thing that Christopher struggled with was, you could probably guess it, it was to do with his sexual identity. It was a core part of his identity, and so for him to come to Christ, that was a struggle for him. So he read, he studied, he prayed a lot, and he he came to this conclusion, and these are in his own words. Christopher was convinced from the Scriptures that either one, He had to abandon God and pursue a gay relationship by allowing my desire for relationship to dictate how I lived or to abandon pursuing a monogamous gay relationship by liberating myself from my desire and my sexuality and live as a follower of Christ. Christopher chose the latter. God continued to work in Christopher and to transform him and amazingly Christopher felt a call to full-time ministry while in prison. His sentence was shortened from six years to three years. So he's like, Why? Well, I think it would be a good idea for me to gain deeper knowledge of the Bible and go to Bible college. So he applied to Moody Bible Institute from prison. His three references were a prison guard, a prison chaplain, and a fellow inmate. Moody accepted his application. He was released in July of 2001, and he began Bible college in August of 2001, and so he jokingly says in his testimony, you know, the class is going around, they're asking questions of one another, what were you doing this summer? (laughs) Today, Christopher is a minister of the gospel. He speaks at churches and conferences, particularly on the issue of sexuality. His teaching has gone far and wide. His ministry has reached five continents, and just as an illustration of that, I was in Steinbach, Manitoba, which is in at the capital of Mennonite country, in Manitoba, but, but the middle of nowhere for everybody else. And uh, I was there for a uh, friend's mother's funeral, and, um, and yeah, lo and behold, Christopher Juan is, is speaking at, you know, uh, at the church there. And uh, so he has a uh, reach that is far and wide, and he's written books and even served as a professor at Moody Bible Institute. And this is obvious, but let me just draw connect the dots for us. The thing that transformed and redeemed this family was the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was on account of the gospel that Angela was able to love her immoral son even though she had no resources within herself to do so because she realized that even as God had loved her in her sinfulness, she could love her son despite his immorality. And it was on account of Christopher choosing to cling to the greater David that his heart and life were radically transformed from the inside out. Let me end with this. Right around the time that Christopher was applying for Moody Bible Institute, his parents, Angela and Leon, decided to attend a missions conference in the city of Dallas. Now, Angela and Leon liked to sit in the front I think is the right thing to do. No, I'm just kidding. But, it's a, but they like to sit in the front. And uh, the, the night before at the conference, uh, because there's so many people there, they had to sit in the back. And so the next morning, they're like, okay, we're not sitting in the back. We're going to sit in the front. So, so uh, Leon gets there early, finds a table at the very front, sets down uh, their two Bibles, and then you know they go mill around. And then as the session is about to start the next morning, or that, that, that same morning, um, they realize that awkwardly, but mistakenly, they had uh, reserved spots for themselves at the speaker's table. So you know, they're also like Chinese, they're honor shame culture. I'm sure they felt greatly embarrassed. But the sort of the host said, you know, just no, stay here. We'd love for you to stay, and no problem. And so they do. And uh, and, and and then she was, and then they were introduced to the speaker for that morning's session. The speaker for that morning's session was Dr. Joe Stowell, who was the president of Moody Bible Institute. Now remember, this is all taking place as Christopher is applying or has applied, all during that same time. So Angela, who is usually a good listener of messages... She had. She could not pay attention to the message at all. Her heart was pounding. She was just trying to think. Okay, what do I say? Like, should I say something? How do I say? When do I say? All these other people are going to come, and so she was praying that God would give her something to say to Doctor Stowell on account of uh, for Christopher, so that he might remember him. So the message concludes. She walks up to Doctor Stowell. She stammers out, I'm, I'm doc, doc, Dr. Stilwell, i Doctor Stowell. I, I have a quick question." Y- "Yes, Mrs. Juan." Dr. Stowell, does, does Moody accept sinners? He paused and gave her a perplexed look, obviously, like, what? Like, y- y- yes, I don't know. Like. Well, the reason why I ask is because my son will be coming out of prison soon. And he wants to study at Moody. And so Angela explained more about Christopher's past and current situation. Dr. Stowell thought for a moment, then asked this question. has he been redeemed? A smile came across Angela's face and the tension in her shoulders dropped and with a sigh said, yes, he has been. He has been redeemed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the redemption that we find in the story of Ruth and that has brought the culmination in the greater David, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that the testimony that we heard from Jack and that we heard indirectly from Christopher even this morning is true of many of us in this room, that we are a redeemed people, that though we are sinful and rebellious and though we were undeserving, you took it upon yourself to do that which was required for our redemption. And you have in your providence led us to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And so I thank you and I praise you for your amazing work in many of our hearts and lives. And I plead with you, O oh God, that you would bring more and more into the fold. That you would add to the flock at MABC. That you would bring sinners to saving faith in Jesus and that you transform their lives even as you did for Naomi and Ruth, even as you have done for Jack, even as you have done for Christopher, that you would bring many to saving faith in Jesus Christ to restore and to redeem them for your name's sake. God, you're so gracious and it is for that we follow you and praise you We pray these things in the epitome of grace, the Lord Jesus. Amen.